0: So we are continuing through our elder affirmation of faith. We're in Article 14. The article is titled Death, Resurrection, and the Coming of the Lord. So let me pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get started. Father, we do ask once again that you'd help us. Um, we, there's much to learn from history. There's much um, to learn about emulating our brothers and sisters who have stood um, against false teaching, against persecution, all these things, we need your help, we want your help, we pray that you would help us grow us all together in grace. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're dealing with last things, eschatology, and next week, uh, practical theology will be coming your way. But what we'll do is what we normally do. We'll read the whole article from start to finish, and you'll see that I'll have underlined portions. Those are the portions that I'll try to emphasize in my reading, and we'll try to come back to Um, And those are the topics that we'll cover. So, next slide. Death, resurrection, and the coming of the Lord, 14.1. We believe that when Christians die, they are made perfect in holiness, are received into paradise, and are taken consciously into the presence of Christ, which is more glorious and more satisfying than any experience on earth. We believe in the blessed hope that at the end of the age, Jesus Christ will return to this earth personally, visibly, physically, and suddenly in power and great glory, and that he will gather his elect, raise the dead, judge the nations, and establish his kingdom. We believe that the righteous will enter into the everlasting joy of their master, and those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness will be consigned to everlasting conscious misery. 14.3 We believe that the end of all things in this age will be the beginning of a never-ending, ever-increasing happiness in the hearts of the redeemed, as God displays more and more of his infinite and inexhaustible greatness and glory for the enjoyment of his people. So on the next slide, we have two biblical texts to get us started. These two texts relate in order to the subject matter that we'll deal with today. So the intermediate state, first text, and the second text, bodily resurrection. So first text, Luke 23, thief on the cross. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Second text, First Thessalonians 4, 16, bodily resurrection. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven, that is bodily, with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So those are the two topics for today. Intermediate state and bodily resurrection. Derek can go to the next slide. All right, so here, comfort from Jesus' lordship in light of historical schism. So one thing that I am constantly struck by as I study historical theology is the fact that there is so much division, schism. There are so many false teachers out and about in church history. Well, why? I'm constantly like, why on earth is it this way? And I'm reminded... Matthew 24, 2 Peter, Ephesians 4, of, of a number of truths that are helpful when we look at historical theology. Matthew 24, this is verses 4 and 5 and verse 11. And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. Many false prophets will arise and mislead Many so Jesus is not taken by surprise by the fact that when you go into historical theology, you see much schism, division, people in trying to infiltrate the church. Second Peter two one, but false prophets also arose among the people. That's Old Testament Israel, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. So Matthew, Jesus predicts it, right? He's not surprised at all. And in fact, he planned it that way for our good. We do live in the latter days, in what John in Revelation called the great tribulation. And one feature of this great tribulation is false teachers constantly trying to make headway into the church to secretly introduce false teaching. So you have Jesus saying that, predicting it. He is the Lord of all history after all. And then Peter affirming it. Jesus is not surprised by this. So another thing that I'm struck by in historical theology is this strand of unity. The true church is really and truly unified for all time in one faith. So Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. For there is one body and one spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. That's what we're dealing with, right? Last things, one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and so on. So that's also something that's true when you read in historical theology. The true church is unified against these false teachers. And then Theophilus, second century in Antioch. God has given to the world, which is driven and tempest-tossed by sins, assemblies, we mean holy churches, in which survive the doctrines of the truth. So amen and amen. We're in full agreement with Theophilus. We will be looking at much false teaching and schism today and there's some comfort comfort definitely for me and hopefully for you as well so next slide the intermediate state so that's our first topic for the day so what is it this is the Erickson page Millard Erickson's Christian theology it's a good systematic theology intermediate state refers to the condition of humans between their death and resurrection so we're talking about what happens after Christians die, but before they're raised from the dead at Jesus' second coming. Erickson's uh, the doctrine of the intermediate state is an issue that is both very significant and problematic. It's very significant because for the absolute most part, all Christians will die prior to Jesus' second coming throughout this church age. And so what happens? Where, where do we go? What do we do? What do we like? What are we? Uh, what, what's the state of our souls? And it's problematic mainly because there are differing views in church history and because what the Bible says about the intermediate state is said kind of in passing. So you have whole passages on the resurrection, right? You don't have whole passages on the intermediate state explaining it. Uh, But what's said is nonetheless very, very clear. All right, next slide. This is one more on our position which we believe to be true, and more confirmation that the church is unified throughout church history. So you have Burkoff affirming our view and his systematic theology, and then you have the Westminster Confession also affirming what we believe. All right? The usual position of the Reformed churches is that the souls of believers immediately after death enter upon the glories of heaven. The Westminster Confession speaks in the same spirit when it says that at death, quote, the souls of the righteous being then made perfect in holiness are received into the highest heavens, where they behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. That is exactly the way that our elder affirmation of faith reads in 14.1 in the first part of that article. All right, next slide, Derek. Here are the two primary views, there have been others, but the two primary views in church history that are errant, that differ from what we believe. All right, soul sleep and purgatory. So soul sleep has been believed by some Anabaptists, the Anabaptists get their name, by the fact that they opposed infant baptism. All right, a couple of other quick things about them. They also did not like, they had an aversion to centralized church authority like what you see in the Catholic Church. They also emphasized the individual aspects of the Christian faith. Most of them did kind of rather than the corporate aspects of the Christian faith. So what is, or the Seventh-day Adventists have also believed this. And Socinians, they have also believed this. Socinians get their name from two Italian scholars, uncle and nephew. Both of their last names were Sozini. And they denied the Trinity. They denied the divinity of Jesus. So Socinians were outright heretics. What is soul sleep? What did they believe? It is the idea that the soul, during the period between death and resurrection, reposes in a state of unconsciousness. So... You are not conscious. They do not believe what we believe. We go into paradise, our souls perfected consciously to enjoy the presence of our Savior forever. Now, where do they grab this idea? They grab it from several texts. You can go to the next slide, Derek. Like Acts 760 and 1 Corinthians 15:6. They also get it from 20. There's at least two other verses in 1 Corinthians 15 where they grab it too. So here are the texts. Then falling on his knees, this is Stephen in Acts 7, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. 1 Corinthians fifteen six. After that, he, that's Jesus, appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. So they get soul sleep from texts like this. So what is sleep? So this is Pole Hill. He wrote an excellent commentary on the book of Acts. He says, the early Christians often used the concept of sleep for death. All right, so there are, here's what's important. There are only two aspects of what's being said in those two texts, what it means to fall asleep. One is, it is a simple reference for death with no indication at all in the word or in the texts that are there for the state of the soul after death or between death and resurrection. But the other cool thing about the word is the implication that the resurrection is coming. Those who are asleep, wake up, right? It's a reference to the coming resurrection. And so the early church would use this phrase to emphasize both of those things. But this is a classic uh, example of reading into the text things that simply are not there. You can replace death, right? Having said this, he died. But some have died. There's no indication of where they are currently at in the text. So on the next slide, the next view is purgatory. This is the Roman Catholic view. All right, purgatory is a place, so it's kind of hard to define. But this guy, Joseph Pohl, he authored the Catholic Doctrine of the Last Things, a dogmatic treatise. So this is a Catholic scholar writing about their own view of purgatory. Those who have died in a state of wickedness go directly to hell. Those who are in a perfect state of grace and penitence go directly and immediately to heaven. Those who, although in a state of grace, are not yet spiritually perfect, go to purgatory. So it is a place of temporary punishment and purification. Okay? So the thought is, you go to purgatory, you can be cleansed in purgatory of the small sins. So people like murderers and, and major, people who have committed major sins go to hell, right? Those it, They call them venial sins. That's small sins, insignificant sins. That you go to purgatory, you can be cleansed of those. The cleansing comes through acts of penance or penitential works. So penitential works have four aspects, the four elements to penitential works. Contrition of heart... Confession with the mouth, satisfaction by works, and a priest absolution, or forgiveness of that sin. So what are these works? Well, it consists of a number of things. So prayer, pilgrimages can be part of acts of penance, fastings, payments of money, indulgences, and other good works. And they grab this, not from any scripture, right? This idea comes primarily from 2 Maccabees, which is not scripture, although the Catholics recognize it as scripture. All right, so they, there's no place that I can point to you in our Bibles where they even gather the idea from. All right, Derek, next slide, brother. There we go. Thank you. <clears throat> so now we're moving on to bodily resurrection. So there are really three. Uh, There's a group of people and then two individuals that we'll kind of talk about in this particular section of bodily resurrection. You have Irenaeus, Tertullian, and then the Gnostics. All right, now the the Gnostics were dealt with for a long time in church history. They're a pretty major group in church history. Um, So Irenaeus, just a few facts about him. He grew up in Smyrna, where he was influenced by Polycarp, who was discipled by the Apostle John. He became bishop of Lyon, France in 177 A.D., just after 42 Christians were martyred by the Romans in Lyon. must have been kind of a daunting task. He remained in Lyon until his death in the early 200s, and he fought against the Gnostics, whom he saw as the primary threat to Christian faith. So Tertullian, I have shadowy figure in there in parentheses. That's sort of true. Um, You can see the facts are somewhat separated, three at the top, three at the bottom. The three at the top are things that we're pretty sure that we know. The three at the bottom are things that we know, all right? So most scholars believe that, we, that he was born around 160 A.D., that he was the son of a Roman centurion, that he practiced law in Rome until his conversion. What we do know for sure is that his writing spanned from 197 to 212 A.D., so that's the period of time we're in. He wrote mostly in Carthage, which is in modern-day Tunisia in North Africa, and that he also fought against the Gnostics vigorously as a danger, a threat to Christian faith. All right, you can go to the next slide, Derek. Gnosticism. So here are just a few facts about Gnosticism. First off, let me say this for all of our encouragement. Again, Gnosticism is wildly confusing. It it is barely a thing, right? It is this hodgepodge of a lot of things, a ton of ideas, some of which are mutually contradictory. All right, Gnosticism. There is no single founder or origin of ancient Gnosticism. It developed over centuries. Scholars generally agree that the influences range from Uh, Babylonian mythology, Persian dualism, Egyptian mysticism, some Jewish Christian ideas, uh, a mixture of Greek uh, philosophy and Eastern uh, meditation mysticism. Its heyday was in the second and third centuries A.D., The New Testament authors, and this is important, deal with what is called incipient Gnosticism. Incipient just meaning at its early stages or beginning to develop. So full-fledged Gnosticism wasn't really around until second and third centuries. But all the strands in history that made up Gnosticism were there prior, long prior, right? Even before the New Testament was written. So the New Testament authors do deal with some of these ideas explicitly. The word Gnostic or Gnosticism comes from gnosis, which means knowledge. And they despised the physical world, including the body, and sought for hidden spiritual knowledge. So that's known in philosophy and history as metaphysical dualism. So they pitted flesh against spirit. The flesh is bad. All physical uh, flesh is bad. Spiritual things are good for the Gnostics. All right, Derek, next slide. So, what did they do? Um, We're gonna get to why all of this is important in a minute, okay, but Peter Jones, he says, Gnosticism proposes a search for the self, not in scriptural revelation or in reason, but within one's own self via mystical trance. So mystical is that which is beyond ordinary understanding, and a trance is like a semi-conscious state, okay, in which a person is not self-aware and is not affected by external things that happen to them while they're in that trance state. All right, here's the, important, the most important part. Gnosis for them, what they're after, is not just any kind of knowledge. It is the experience of the self as divine. So you can see that this runs just so utterly contrary to Christian faith. It is uh, clear for anyone to see. All right. Monistic pantheism, it's not important that you uh, know that phrase per se, but they were monistic pantheists. That means they believe that there is only one being, all right, and that all other forms of reality are either modes or appearances of it or identical with it, all right? So that's why they search for self. They would say, you are God. The, the, the way that you get to God is by deep experience through trance and mysticism and all these things of yourself. Okay. Again, running contrary, despise the body. Remember on bodily resurrection, right? They despise the body. So no bodily resurrection. All right. Um, next slide Derek. Oh, that's it. Okay. <clears throat> the subject of the resurrection became a storm center in the 2nd century in the debate between orthodox christians and gnostics it was especially irenaeus and tertullian who argued for a resurrection of the body of flesh against the gnostics who despise the material world including the physical body and i'll just summarize that second quote by saying they get the idea in the scripture that there is no bodily resurrection from texts like you can see it there 1 corinthians 15:50 2 corinthians 5:1 through 10 and so here are a couple of phrases from those texts. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So they would say, it's funny, right? Because 1 Corinthians 15 is a text about the bodily resurrection. Okay? And the point is that we must be, our bodies even must be transformed. All right? We'll receive glorified bodies. But you can see where they at least try to grab it. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. The perishable, it cannot inherit the imperishable. All right, and Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 10, here are some phrases. For indeed in this house, right, we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up. Life. So they argued vigorous, vigorously against a physical bodily resurrection, based on those texts and their own philosophical ideas. Next text our next slide, Derek. All right, this is the Gnostic gospel of Philip on the left and Tertullian responding on the right. All right? Bodily resurrection, Gnostic heresy, and true faith. The soul is a precious thing and came to be in a contemptible body. Some are afraid, lest they rise naked, Corinthians. Because of this, they wish to rise in the flesh, and they do not know that it is those who wear the flesh who are naked. Flesh and blood shall not inherit the kingdom of God. What is this which will not inherit? This which is on us. Flesh, the body. Tertullian's response. What you sow is not the body, which will be, does not permit you to suppose that in the resurrection a different body is to arise from that which is sown in death. For if wheat is sown, barley does not spring up, Still, it is not the very same grain in kind. It rises, however, out of the furrow enriched with a copious crop, built up in a compact fabric, constructed in a beautiful order, fortified by cultivation, and clothed around on every side. And here's probably the most important phrase. These are the circumstances which make it another body from God, to which it is changed, not by abolition, but by amplification. So the flesh is not altogether destroyed or abolished. It is amplified, as it were. It's a reference to our glorified bodies. All right, next slide. So why does this matter? It matters because of some of those early slides. Second Peter two one. People are trying at now actively, okay, to introduce destructive heresies into Christian churches secretly. So they're doing it subtly. So you got we got to be on the alert, right? Modern Gnosticism. Okay, in 1945, Muhammad Ali, he's an Egyptian peasant, he discovers Gnostic texts near Nag Hammadi, which is a village in Egypt. James Robinson, who professed for a long time reformed faith, then denied it. He denied reformed faith, and he uh, translated these texts and eventually said of them that they are, quote, the answer to the human dilemma. Modern Wiccan priestess, Caitlin Matthews. All right, she has said, About Christianity and these Gnostic texts. Gnosticism serves most admirably as a bridge for paganism to infiltrate Christianity in our time. All right, lots of forces at work trying to do this. The perennial philosophy. So, what is the perennial philosophy? It is monistic pantheism, same ideas, all right. A perspective in philosophy and spirituality that views all of the world's religious traditions as sharing a Single metaphysical truth or origin. All doctrine has grown from that particular metaphysical truth or origin, okay, according to the perennial philosophy. Now, why is the perennial philosophy important? Next slide, Derek. Thank you, sir. This guy, Richard Rohr, he is a perennial philosopher, all right? He emphasizes alternate orthodoxy, a term he's a Franciscan monk in the Catholic Church, okay? Um, Referring to a focus on orthopraxis, a belief that lifestyle and practice are much more important than mere verbal orthodoxy, which he feels is much overlooked in Catholic preaching today. According to Rohr's teaching, a person does not have to follow Jesus or practice any formal religion to come by salvation, but rather, quote, fall in love with the divine presence under whatever name. Rohr says people are disillusioned with conservative churches that teach that nonbelievers go to hell. The perennial tradition or perennial philosophy forms the basis of much of his teaching. His work's essential message focuses on the union of divine reality with all things and the human potential and longing for this union. Now, um, I'm going to say what I'm going to say cryptically on purpose. But here, the point is, well, I mean, why is it? You, you probably never even heard it. All those people, right? All these things. So why is it important that I'm talking about it now? Why do I bring it up? Why am I wasting everybody's time, right? People who have been influenced by Richard Rohr have already, so there is a a book, I'm gonna say it cryptically, that I know has been in the hands of at least um, one or two people in the church that the author of the book is a perennial philosopher who says of Richard Rohr, and I quote, he is one of my favorite theologians and authors so it's at our doorstep that's all i'm saying we must obey the apostles we must obey jesus second peter again false prophets also arose among the people just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies even denying the master who bought them bringing swift destructions upon themselves we have to be on guard we must be alert just like Irenaeus, just like Tertullian, they fought against the Gnostics, they denied bodily resurrection. We, that's our hope. Our hope is in Jesus who raised from the dead and who's coming back. We're looking to that glorious day. It's really um, one of the primary cures for sin in the Christian life is looking forward to that day, right? Bodily resurrection for the future, perfection. So this is one of the major lessons that we can learn from church history or historical theology is this idea that we must be alert. Amen. I was done. Okay. I'll, I'll pray. That's a miracle, by the way, it feels like to me. Um, all right, I'll pray, and then we'll open it up for question, comment, and that sort of thing for about maybe five minutes. Father, we pray for your help. Um, perfect love casts out fear. We're, we're not wanting to be afraid of, of the things that lurk outside the door, and nonetheless, we want to be wise we want to obey the teaching of Scripture, to be on the alert, to walk soberly. Just you pray you'd help us? We thank you for uh, glorification, for the fact that in the intermediate state we're not simply asleep, but that we're with you in, etern- in, 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 in perfection, in holiness, enjoying your presence forever. We look forward to that day. We also thank you so much for bodily resurrection. We look forward also very much to that day. We're grateful for the promises that you've made to us that will dwell with you forever in in perfect holiness and joy and light. No darkness, nothing unclean can enter that place. We thank you so much, and we pray that you would help us to constantly have that that day, the new age, the coming new age, in in the forefront of our minds. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Question, comment, anything like that? uh, Four minutes. Okay, so I actually have two questions. Uh, one I think is, is a fairly easy answer, but I just wanna ask it for the benefit. And the second one, um, you don't have to answer if you don't want to. Uh, the first one is, uh, not everyone in the church is a church historian. Uh, they, don't under, they don't have the background or the, you know, to, to even understand what these things are even talking about, right? So how does someone who's not a church historian prepare their heart as a Christian to defend themselves against subtle heresies, right? Those things that creep in. Um, The second question is, I know you were cryptic about the book, and I understand why you were cryptic about the book, but if we're going to warn people, why don't we mention the name of the book? Thank you, Dad. Both of those. <laughs> what, what, what I was, what I, I, because this is being recorded, that's the only reason why I'm cryptic. I'm happy to say the name of the book to you in person. That, that I will do. So, anybody who wants to know the name of the book, are you good with that? Okay. Anybody who wants one to know the name of the book, just come to me and I'll tell you exactly the name of the book and the author. Okay? Yeah. Um, all right. And the, the, the first question, which is a really good question. Um, I think the best way to prepare ourselves to notice uh, and you know guard ourselves and others is to know the Bible really 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 well. All right. So I think I don't think you have to know any of this, right? I didn't know any of this until this week. Okay. And um, but I recognize it when I'm reading about it as 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 false. Wrong, dangerous. Okay, so I think that's it. I think that's the answer. If you want to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, it's the formula is simple, right? Filled with the Holy Spirit, facing God's book, prayerful, humble. Anybody else?
1: Not, not Derek. Ask you a question (laughs) i was i was gonna add to the question that tim just asked um that god gifts the different members of the body differently and he equips some of them to be church historians he equips some of them to be teachers and shepherds and lookouts which means if you're not going to be that guy i think you need to do two things maybe three One, come to grow so you can get it in digestible forms and pay attention. But I think the second thing, and maybe the more important one, is to be incredibly humble, to acknowledge that that's not who you are, and then hide yourself amongst the body where people are gifted differently. And I think the way that plays itself out is that you have to expose what you're thinking and what you believe to other brothers in communion and then be humble enough to be corrected if you start veering left or right, um, because that just may not be your gift set, right? In the same way that I don't have certain gifts and it's helpful when other people are like, hey, I don't know if you realize this, but you're kind of doing this thing over here, and it's like, oh, that's, that's really helpful, thank you. So the answer is to hide yourself amongst the sheepfold that has been given by Christ shepherds to make the church the pillar in support of the truth. So don't have to be a church historian, just be in the church.
0: Amen. All right, uh, nine minutes, it's 9.51, and then we'll be back here for our service. You're dismissed.